in my job, I I make a difference one time every 10, you know, nine out of 10, it's, you lose, basically, if just we have to apply this kind of standard. But you feel that you lose by doing the right thing, you know? So I know I'm trying to defend this community. Um, there is a good chance we will win, but maybe not. Maybe the mine will open anyhow. Maybe the pollution will be there anyhow. But I had the feeling that I've done whatever I could do to make it better. Hello, welcome to What's Next. This is my show. I'm Joel Krogman, and I'm glad you're here. This is episode four. It felt really good to get episode three out last week, and it feels even better to share episode four. This podcast is starting to feel like a child in that after having a baby, you can't remember what life was like before that kid was around. You can't imagine what you did with all the free time you must have had. And that is how this show is starting to feel. Um, I love doing it and somehow it feels like I've always been doing it. And I have no idea what I did with all my free time before. Uh, It has only been four weeks. So that's weird. Okay, today I'm sharing my conversation with Flaviano Bianchini. Flaviano is an environmental and human rights activist. He's the founder and director of Source International. Source International empowers communities that live in the most polluted places on earth due to mining and oil extraction and other industry. Uh, these, These are communities who are really suffering serious health consequences from this pollution. Things like reproductive issues, disease, and death. I spent a week or so with Flaviano in Peru a little while back making a film about Source International and just witnessing him work firsthand in these communities. And I I really wanted to talk with him because he's a really, really unique kind of person. He lives a life that is built around understanding the experience of people who are suffering, and he does everything he can, including risking his own health and safety to help them. And he's been doing it for two decades, and he's he's learned a lot through all of his experiences and has a really unique perspective. And it was a really great conversation. We had a slight mic issue at the beginning and end of the conversation, so bear with those technical difficulties. So here is my conversation with Flaviano Bianchini. Sorry about the uh, mic stuff. Thanks for fighting through that. Well, so so step one, we can hear each other. <laughs> Check. <laughs> step two. How are you, by the way, Joel? I'm, oh man, I'm good. I'm so good. How are you? I'm good. I'm yeah, good. your hair. Your hair is is. Uh, the last time I saw you, you were bald, and you look like a mad scientist now. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. I, I should do something with this hair, but I'm lazy. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I remember my hair used to be that long, and uh, sometimes you just don't feel like doing anything. Yeah. So where are you right now? Uh, I'm in the center of Italy, the place where I was born. Okay. And, and just, I mean, I was here for New Year, and then I just stayed for a bit longer. That's it. Okay. Nothing cool. special. Yeah. Um, and you're... You're living and working mostly out of uh, your home? 
Yes, mostly out of my place, my house, yeah. Uh, okay. Which at the moment, I don't know which one is it, but uh, somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> I'm, I'm some sort of digital nomad, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that has become probably a little bit more even easier in the last couple of years with how everybody seems to be, or a lot more people are now. Yeah. So, yeah. With the pandemic stuff. Cool. Well, okay, so... You're, you, uh, so I just want to set up the context a little bit for our conversation. Um, um, specifically, I'm not recording, you, by the way, I'm not recording at the moment. Oh, can you record on your end? Okay. I yeah. start then. Yeah. Great. Great. Good. We're recording. Beautiful. Okay. So to set the context, Source International is a nonprofit organization that you started that works to empower communities um, who are living in the most polluted places on earth. And these are places that are being polluted by mining operations um, and other industry. And your work is to go into these communities with scientists and lawyers, and you gather data about pollution and human rights abuses. And then you help these community members build a case, gather evidence that they can present to governments and to authorities to sort of to, so that they can stand up for their own rights. So far, is that accurate? <laughs> yes, it is. Okay, <laughs> great. To do that, you're basically for a period of time living in these communities. They become sort of like family. You know, I, my experience in Cerro de Pasco when I spent that time with you there was very much that way. By living in these places, you know, you're exposing yourself to these conditions that that are human rights violations. And then also it's like this this David and Goliath kind of story where there's these massive mining companies that are committing these abuses and they have access to all these power structures and they have huge resources. And the stuff that you're looking to do is very much something that they don't want to have happen. They're willing to, to get into all kinds of nefarious activities in order to protect their interests in these, in these places. And so there's these inherent risks involved. Uh, so, and I know that this is really just scratching the surface of all the stuff that you do at Source International. And I know you have a team that's doing it all with you, but the first thing that I want to ask is there's so much that is required in order to do this work. The degree to which you have to care, where do you think that comes from? Well, I don't know. It's, um, it's hard to say. Um, I think it's, it's probably come from you know, your background and the way you were, the way you grew up uh, as an adult somehow. Uh, it's hard to say, but you know, um, I'm, I'm a I'm a white um, man heterosexual, so I'm like the stereotype of the privileged. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, Me too. However, I I was grew up in a very poor family in a remote areas in the middle of nowhere with a village that got destroyed by an earthquake when I was a kid. So you know, if you scrub mm. under the surface, I'm not a privileged at all, and therefore. I think that's somehow where everything starts. You know, the empathy with someone that is somehow similar to you. Um, mm. And then obviously, I mean, I started, I, I, I moved the first time in, in Guatemala when I was 23 years old. And at that moment, to me, was a bit of a way to get out from 
from Italy, but also was a, an adventure, you know. Uh, and then I started to to properly relate with people that are affected every day. And and uh, nowadays it's like 17, almost 18 years that I'm doing this job. So it's almost 18 years that I, I spend the majority of my time in contact with people who are suffering from the behavior from of other people, basically. And um, as a result of this, uh, I... I feel like I feel like this uh, hunger for how these things are going and how the world is moving. And as you said before, uh, yeah, it's almost being a brother when we go to Cerro de Pasco or to other places. People recognize us in the street. It's just like we have been there so many times and so long, and with so much, um, so much to share, so much to to contribute together. That really creates a sort of brotherhood uh, among the people who are struggling for for a goal and a goal that is not even such a a sophisticated goal it's just to have the rights of the people respected yeah yeah can you talk a little bit about your your childhood what what were your parents like were they living some kind of similar life where they were making space in their lives for people who didn't have as much or were suffering (laughs) actually not uh, not at all um, <laughs> I'm a bit of the black sheep of the family. My family is mostly mm. conservative. Uh, I have uh, mm. my 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 father and um, the vast majority of my parents are in the military career, and so I just came out. I could have come out very conservative like them, or just the opposite. And I think I just came out the opposite. You know, were there certain influences that pulled you that way, or were you just always that way as a kid? I don't know exactly. Um, I have. Um, I don't. I honestly don't know. I don't have an answer to this. I don't know if I was there. I don't remember when I was a kid. If I was uh, definitely, I was grew up in this place, which is in the middle of the mountains and the nature. So the feel, the the, the correlation with the nature is kind of natural if you grew up here. Um, because there's nothing else. It's a small village in the middle of nowhere. There's only mountains and forests around. Um, mm. So that's something definitely. And for that one, for sure, my my parents always bring me out in the mountains and just hiking, picking mushrooms. You know those. Uh, and obviously, I learn how to love the environment from being here. But then I think when you love the environment and the nature, I think just a step further is just to, to to love other people i guess hmm. did you were you someone who if you saw a classmate getting bullied or something at school that you intervened or <laughs> i was the one bullying <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> no yeah i um, no yeah i don't i wasn't i i wasn't the, the, this special kid protecting and defending everyone um um, not at all. Um, I was an asshole. I don't know if that can be said in a yeah in a in a podcast. Yeah, yeah yes. <laughs> uh, um, I think everything came out later in my life. Um, probably, um, yeah, later when I was already I don't know, probably eighteen or something like that. Then I, then I started to to be more what I would call today on a, on the right side. But when I was mm. a kid and and a teenager, um, 
you know, I was bullied myself when I was 12. I bullied other people when I was 16. So I think, I think my story uh, as a human rights defender starts later, definitely. Um, probably more into the, yeah, the 18 years or something like that. I, I have a similar story myself in that if you saw me through kindergarten through ninth grade, I was a very different kid than I was in high school. In elementary school and grade school, I was not very nice. The transition to high school was was very humbling for me, where I realized that my entire view of myself and the world is is actually wrong. I think I'm still recovering from it 20-some years later. But I, I'm curious for you, was there an event that caused you to open your eyes to the world and your role in it and what you want your role to be? No, I don't think there is a special event, you know, the this... Um enlightenment of of a moment no i think it was probably a process definitely up in uh at the end of the high school i would say uh, when i was um 18 or something like that i started and then after the high school i just uh left the this place where i was born and i just traveled for one year uh randomly with no money and no <laughs> Uh, just a backpack and and mm-hmm. i think that was definitely very transformative i met so many people and the most interesting people i met during that year they were all like into this environmental protection uh work studied environmental science those people are the one who basically changed my mind and i felt uh, different somehow and then one year later i enrolled in the university and i decided to study environmental science which is already you know a sort of a statement um but I wouldn't. I wouldn't never sign to to environmental science without that random year traveling around Europe. And then I enrolled in the university, and I remember that just the years after there was this um, prestige disaster in Galicia. Uh, there was this oil ship that sunk a couple of miles outside uh, uh, the coast of Galicia, in northern Spain on the mm. Atlantic, uh, above Portugal, just to make it, um, uh, mm-hmm. position it. Mm-hmm. And I said, I remember that I was thinking, okay, I, this is the moment I have to do something. And I just took a, a flight and flew to Barcelona, which is on the other side of Spain, but that's one of the only flight we found. And then hitchhiked <laughs> on my way to, <laughs> to, to Galicia and start helping people in cleaning the beaches. And, um, and that was, I was, 20 or I don't know, probably 19. Yeah, 19 or <laughs> that, Just the way you went about that, it so epitomizes you to me. Like it's so, you just got on a flight that was on the other side of the country and then hitchhiked, <laughs> hitchhiked there and just got rolled up your sleeves and got busy doing whatever you could do. Like, I mean, that is a rare response, I think. Most people would be like, oh, okay, I can't quite get a flight. Or like they would just sleep on it for a couple of days and then that urgency would go away. But you actually did it. Yeah, I guess this is, um, yeah, I'm most, uh, mostly a doing person, a thinking over person. <laughs> so, and then I also, I was 20, you know, nothing, that's nothing to lose. And there was... Um, yeah. Uh, it was just a great occasion. I said, just like, let's do it. And and that was also very powerful because we were a bunch of guys from all over the world, mostly Europe, but there mm. were people from all over the world, uh, mostly young, 
cleaning up the the the, the mess that an oil company uh, has done mm. and it reminds me a bit these days exactly these days i don't know when this podcast will be uh, broadcast but uh, we are recording during the days in which there are these young guys in in germany trying to protect a village that has been destroyed by a coal at the ignite um, uh, mine uh, which is a big mm. news here in Europe in this moment. Mm. And, and I can relate to those guys that are 20, they are in their 20s, they are young. Nowadays, there are way more people, of course. Uh, twenty That was 20 years ago. Uh, we were really few activists. And uh, I don't even... There was no organization at all. There was no leader. There were no you know, Extinction Rebellion or, you know, big groups. Yeah. Uh, they're just like people all over Europe that just say, okay, let's go and do something because yeah. we need to do something. And I think, yeah, that was another definitely instrumental point, uh, pivotal point for sure of my my growth as, uh, as an activist. So what was it there specifically that formed you as you made decisions about where you wanted to go from there the fact that i felt for once that i was helping i was doing something concrete you know which is a drop in the ocean because you take out with your bare hands i mean not with gloves but you know how much oil can you take out yeah it's obviously a drop in the ocean but you feel that at least one drop of the ocean is made by you and then we moved then i moved to a place where we were uh, treating birds that were sunk in the oil. And that was even more a drop in the ocean because we could save one bird every 100. Mm. Uh, I still remember birds arrived in, in trucks of hundreds and the, 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 the first job was to basically suppress 90 plus percent. The first job was to what? Uh, suppress, suppress, kill. Oh. Kill the birds that were too too heavily damaged to... To, to be saved, wow. uh, a sort of uh, clinical triage. Yeah, uh, there was veterinary doing this. We were just helping. You know, I, I was unskilled, totally unskilled. Yeah. So I just do the the hard stuff, hard work. You know, carrying the boxes and all of these things. Yeah. So again, it, it is a drop in the ocean, but you feel. I mean, I felt for the first time, I think, that I was doing something concrete to uh, protect the environment. And I also came across for the first time in a direct way on how those environmental pollution, environmental disaster can also affect human beings. Because, uh, you know, Galicia is a place mostly, I mean, there are major economies, uh, fishermen, and they were unable to fish for, for, for months. And I remember they were super kind with us, uh, but they couldn't fish and they were just, you know. Uh, basically jobless. Being Europe, obviously there were a lot of support from the state or whatever, but things is something like that happen in Ecuador or you know in some yeah. place in Africa, right. and then people literally starve. Right. And you enroll in environmental studies at university in Italy, is that right? Yep. Yes, in Italy. Okay. And what what was the plan originally? What what, what were you hoping to do? I don't think I had a plan. <laughs> I, I just saw, you know, I thought those people are interesting. Those people are doing something. Uh, let's try to do the same. Let's try to to enroll in the university and see and see what's next. Didn't really make a plan. Did you think you were going to be an activist with your education? No, no, okay. not at all. No. No, that was. I think that was completely out of the question. Um, I thought I could be a researcher, 
um, maybe someone working on a national park, you know, uh, something more like this. Then when I was at the end of my studies uh, of the first three years, I I came across a, uh, in a conference in Milan, uh, this Guatemalan lady that, that she was an activist working in Guatemala against mining pollution in her country. And she was a, like, I would say, the typical activist with a very powerful uh, position, but without scientific knowledge. And I was just coming out from university. Actually, at that time, I didn't even finish the university. And I was just like, hey, why don't I should, why don't I can help you in getting the scientific evidence? And she agreed. And, um, and then I think, if I remember well, it was November or maybe October. And then in December, I graduated. And in February, I was on a one-way ticket to Guatemala. And that's where I start to be an activist, basically. What was it about being an activist that drew you in to, to kind of become your whole life? Was it the feeling of actually making a difference? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the feeling to make a difference, the feeling to do the right thing. Because sometimes, you know, um, in my job, I've, I make a difference one time every 10, you know? Nine out of 10, mm. it's you lose, basically. If just we have to apply this kind of standard, mm. but you feel that you lose by doing the right time, the right thing, you know. So I know I'm trying to defend this community. Um, there is a good chance we will win, but maybe not. Maybe the mine will open anyhow. Maybe the pollution will be there anyhow. But I had the feeling, the feeling that I had that I've done whatever I could done to to make it better. Yeah. So in Guatemala, you did you have success that first that first uh, experience? Um, well, <laughs> um, yes and no. Um, I started following one case, but then ended up following three cases: Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And uh, we did obtain it. Did end well the case in Salvador? Uh, pardon, sorry, in Honduras, where. Working with uh, with local NGO, we obtained that the basically the mine was shut down and the and the mining law was changed, uh, was declared unconstitutional by the mm -hmm. Supreme Court because it was affecting mm -hmm. the health of uh, uh, of people. Then we tried in Guatemala. Then uh, it didn't end up very well at the beginning because I was uh, expulsed from the country. You were kicked out of the country. Kicked out of the country. Yes. I was kicked out from the country and then I was sued by the mining company and basically I was forced to leave Guatemala. I couldn't go back for 10 years. But wow. like three years later, the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights declared that we were right basically and that the mine was forced to, to change operation. And then after I was uh, kicked off from the country, I ended up back in Italy because I didn't know where to go and I got in contact with other activists. Uh, I was uh, adopted by Amnesty International, the organization, and just being in contact with other activists. And so, so were you at that point? You were facing like legal trouble, and were you feeling at that point like I made a, I maybe made a mistake. Maybe this, maybe this wasn't I, I sh what I should have done, or I should have done this differently. Or, or did you feel like this is what you could expect? This is this is what happens when you take a risk like this and you side with people who are being oppressed, and you are siding against established power structures? 
Yeah, I think I felt mostly like this, like, well, uh, that's something I should consider from the beginning. I think if you decided to be an activist, you have to put it into uh, consideration that that there is some risk involved. Yeah. It's like if you decided to be, you know, an, uh, I don't know, a free solo climber, uh, you know, you accept that the, there must be a risk. Uh, and I think that's the same if you're an activist. Do you get a little bit of like a like a adrenaline high from going into these situations that are extreme? I think I had it. Uh, now, I don't think so. No. I think at the beginning, if you think it from a personal perspective, it is something you believe in it. It is obviously there's value involved, but it's also an adventure, let's be honest. Uh, being yeah. on the other side of the world, speaking new languages, knowing, knowing new people, different people, different cultures, um, fighting for something. Today is way less. Um, uh, I I don't think I feel the adrenalines anymore, but I restart climbing. That's something. <laughs> just, oh, just you did? Be, you, you, took up, sure. you took up climbing? <laughs> yeah. You got to get it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, you know, there's this high degree of commitment that's required for you to do what you do because it you you have to risk a lot to do it. You're risking your personal health and well-being being exposed to all of these different chemicals and and toxins in the environment from the heavily polluted areas that you're working in. You're risking your safety. I I imagine over the long term of doing this work, building a family is if that's what you want would be a challenge. So you're sort of sacrificing that. Is it ever hard to commit knowing the cost of, every, of, of it all? Well, I guess that in, in the life, every decision you make is always a balance. No, you get something and you, and, and you leave something else. Um, yes. If you spend, as you said, if you spend most, more than six months a year outside uh, traveling in remote places where sometimes you cannot even call back home, it's it's obviously complicated to to get a family, for example. Although it's not impossible, eh? I won't say that it's impossible. I won't say that there are people who manage. And also, you know, a, a lot of small things that that you have to 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 sacrifice. You know, having a, a safe job, for example, something that you know, having um, doing a regular sport, which I try to do. I mean, you probably remember I was trying to run pretty much everywhere I am because it's the easiest way yeah. to, to do some sport everywhere. But it is different from someone who can go to the gym every every three times a week, every week, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things, small things that you have to sacrifice. But on the other side, you got, you got a lot of experience. I mean, I've been traveling in more than 60 countries, living in cultures for months in the middle of, you know, the Amazon forest or up in the Andes or in the remote villages in Central Africa or up in the desert and uh, in, in the, the middle of Mongolia, you know, just a few, maybe, and, and for months and with local people, it's not, it's not someone who has done a lot of holidays. It's a completely different experience. Yeah, no doubt. You know, spending a month in the tents in the middle of Mongolia with local activists, uh, eating their food, trying to speak in their language, uh, or, in, you know, in, I feel that all of these things were worth it. If I would come back, I would have done pretty much everything. It's just yeah. the the person I am now is 
it's thanks to that and to the people that I have met uh, all around those trips. Have you found through the process that you've had to continue to like dig deeper to find the motivation to keep doing it or that was easy? Depends from the moment. Uh, it's a lot of up and down. I don't know if that's normal or that's just me. Mm. Uh, but there's definitely up and down. What would get you down? And lower, A very lower point for me was definitely during the pandemic. Um, mm. Because we kept working, you kept, I, I kept working on, on, on the goal, but it's hard when you are so far away for two years without seeing the people that are supposed to be your beneficiaries and doing the training online and doing all of those things. It was, uh, it was definitely very hard because you, I was feeling yeah. very detached from, from, from the people I was try, I was trying to benefit. I was trying to benefit. Uh, yeah. then when I was able to travel again the first time, I found it back a lot of motivation, obviously, by being another time in Cerro de Pasco and meeting the people and everybody was just like, as you said, as we were friends, even if we didn't see for two years. Um, so, yeah. so it was, uh, it was motivation, obviously. And then also, I, I guess the lower point is also when you're tired, um, uh, I spent, I always say I spent like seven or eight years of my life in constant jet lag. <laughs> yes. So it's uh, sometimes you're just tired, you know, you think you have to go to Indonesia and the day before you just came back from Peru and it's just like changing the climate, changing everything. It's super fascinating. Uh, again, I wouldn't regret. It's amazing. But sometimes got tired. And then you lower your motivation, especially... When you have this combination, maybe that you're tired at, at the same time, results are not coming, then uh, it's obviously challenging for, for the motivation. In those moments where it's challenging and the motivation is, is, is low or lacking, how, how do you keep going or what do you, what do you, uh, what do you use as, a, as the inspiration? I guess just dig deep, <laughs> dig deep into your motivation and try to find uh and remember that that you're still doing something and that, that what you do is important and there are people that are relying on you i think that's probably the the the, the most mm. important of all you know when when you think that there are entire communities relying on on you being there or on you doing the job uh yeah i guess that's what gives the 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 bigger motivation does that ever feel heavy like like more than you want to carry yeah every day basically yeah 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 it's um yeah sometimes yeah yeah and what so what do you what do you do with that how do you not get bitter or resent the weight of that you have to carry or how do you just keep that in all right perspective or do you well sometimes i also get lost in those things um but I think what what it helps a lot is just to stop and be outside and and see the whole picture. Mm. Sometimes you see, you know, I think it's part of how we are human being. But we generally maybe we see our problem as the biggest problem in the world. But if you see the big picture, uh, you put it into perspective sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, that there is a bigger problem uh, that 
people are facing every day. Mm. And I think, yeah, and then just embrace the fact that we human beings, we are, we evolve into problem makers <laughs> somehow. Uh, we always tend to overcomplicate uh, our situation and our life, I feel. So so a goal then is to is to keep things simple? I think so. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. But if you can keep things a bit simpler, uh, I think it's going to be easier. Yeah. Uh, or at least it's going to help to see differently. Yeah, I just think it's so interesting because from a a belief standpoint, on the spectrum of believing, believing in God or a higher power to agnostic to atheist where do you fall on that on that spectrum um 100 atheist okay in terms of the motivation is it that you that you see that these are people and you have the ability to do something so if you didn't do something you'd be not being a fellow human yeah i think that's the that's the the, the point i i feel those people are yeah human like me and um and I try to help and do my best. And I don't, I don't think there is. Uh, as I said, I'm I'm 100% atheist. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pure scientist, and from that point of view, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I cannot see the the God and the evil. I just see people who care, people who are responsible and concerned about their role in the world and what they want to do, and people that don't. And I feel if I have to, you know, say the the evil is egoist, individualist, uh, people who just think about themselves, mm-hmm. um, which is typical. You know, the job that I do working mostly with against big companies is it's someone maybe sitting in New York that has uh, stocks of a mining company that generate harmful consequences all over the world, but he received every quarter is nice check and doesn't care at all the results of that check. Um, that's to me the, the evil of our society. Uh, and that mm. I identify as individualism. And I think I'm on the other spectrum. I'm someone who, if I see that an action that I'm doing is doing harmful to someone, I won't do it. Or even better, I would try to do the opposite, to do something to do good to other people. Yeah. And I don't think we 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 need you know the the spectrum of the paradise and the god to do that. We just need to feel ourselves as a human being. Saying that, that I have nothing against people who believe in God and the paradise, obviously. But um, I feel that you don't need it. You know, it's just like this is a human like me, and I want to help this guy, and and that's it. Yeah, well, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you 100%. And I just think that that there's, um, it's not in the words somebody says. I see that in the choices you make and how you, like, for instance, you've done a lot of work in like Central South America. Yeah. And you've seen this this issue of migration into the US from Central American countries. And so you decide, I want to understand this issue more. And... I'm going to fly to what was it, El Salvador and mail your passport Guatemala. to Texas or Guatemala, mail your passport to Texas, and you were going to travel as a migrant into the US. Like that, the, those, are, those are extreme choices, a, like a, a, a very much a desire to 
to understand the experience of another human being before you make up your own mind about what's going on that, you know, very few people are going to be willing to do. People who don't have to, people who have the privilege to not have to do that are not going to do that. Yes, but that that's probably something I was... Uh, in that case, for example, I remember that uh, this feeling of having the privilege to not being forced to do it, I felt that it was... that I needed to do it, even if I had the privilege. I know it's hard to explain, but because I wanted to put my feet into the shoes of people who didn't have my privilege and possibly help them because the the, the the end the goal of the of the trip was to help them through through storytelling to telling this story to telling their stories um and again we we, we go back to the same situation that we mentioned before i i am and i wasn't able to think these guys are going are going to texas from uh, to arizona from guatemala and you know i don't care because I have my passport and I can go. I wanted to, 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 to help them and I wanted to be on their side. Uh, otherwise, I couldn't be able to properly understand and therefore to help them as much as I could. Yeah, yeah. But again, I think, you know, it, it, it's just this thread that I see through you. You know, there's an oil spill in Spain. Buy the, <laughs> buy the first ticket you can and then hitchhike across the country and do that, you know, then fly to Guatemala. And like when you were in Guatemala doing that work, that for, did you even, how did you even make money? How did you survive in, in the sense of like, just provide for your own basic needs? I had, um, before going, I was, I, I, I wrote a project and I rose up a few money. At that case was 7,500 euro for a year and a half, basically. So I was mm. living wow. with 300 euro a month which is uh, definitely <laughs> very little. <laughs> but, but at that time, I don't know now the inflation and everything, but at that time, Guatemala was a cheap country, so I could manage it. Yeah. Let's put it like this. But yeah, I don't... Uh, again, the goal... I mean, even today, I mean, I, 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 I have, through Source International, I have a salary, but obviously I could win. I could gain 10 times more working on a company. Yeah. Literally 10 times more, maybe not 10, but six or seven times more easily. Yeah. But, but I don't, you know, that's, uh, the, that's not my goal. Let's say I'm driven by other things. Yeah. At what point does Source International actually become an organization and you start doing kind of working officially with that name and, um, growing from there? Exactly 10 years ago, in October, November 2012. So 2012? Yes. Yeah, we celebrated 10 years a couple of months ago. So when I was to Guatemala, and then I came back, and then I studied human rights, and then I traveled to Peru for the first time in, in, in Cerro de Pasco. Then I came back and I studied again and then go back to Peru again. And then I did the travel that you mentioned with the migrants. And after all of that <laughs> and and a few other adventures, I had the opportunity to become an Ashoka Fellow. And that was the because the idea of creating Source International was already in my mind since quite a while. Mm. So to create an organization to do that, because I was working for other organizations as an independent scientist slash activist. But uh, I wanted to create 
you know something bigger yeah uh, to have more impact and and to be basically independent and the occasion came yeah in 2012 when i was selected as an ashoka fellow and therefore i was able to 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 start source international and what does that mean to be an ashoka fellow well it means that basically you enter part of this fellowship which for three years provide you uh, a, a small support so you can focus on your project development for three years without having to care again to to gain your money for living mm-hmm. uh, and I give you three three years of time and that was enough basically in three years I was able to just set up everything and find the first donors and the first projects and start to do the the, the all the operations as a structured entity and not just as Flaviano uh, going around the world. Okay, cool. And what so what does Source International look like now then? How how many are on your team and, and where are you working? Well, the, the team is still pretty small. We were a bigger team before the pandemic, uh, mm-hmm. but then it got shrink a little bit. So, however, I think I kind of like the fact that we are a small team because we are basically a small group and a, and a group of friends at the end. Mm. And so we rely a lot on you know being a small group of friends, small group of team, uh, small team, easy and quick to deploy uh, all over the world very quickly. And then we rely a lot on local partners. So basically, especially after the pandemic, we we changed a bit our operation. So we 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 work more to strengthen our local partners. So for example, Central Labor in Cerro de Pasco, or our partners in Mongolia and Indonesia, Ecoton, and all of these partners. And then we remain as a small team of four or five person at the moment who just travel when it's needed to the place and 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 maybe spend a month there or whatever and helping the small groups to to grow. Locally, so you're training them you're training them to gather evidence to, to yes. document things and then they, they they send the evidence they gather back to you? Yes. Or to some local lawyers. We also partner okay. with local lawyers. So we train them to to how to uh, collect the evidences and then we put them in contact with local lawyers. Sometimes we train local lawyers on how to use international um, law systems, for example, because maybe, you know, you're working in Liberia, maybe, and they are super experts of the Liberian legal system, but they are not mm. particularly familiar with the international system. So yeah. uh, we work a lot on these aspects and then we try to, we, I mean, we support them as much as we can and then try to make them sustainable basically on the long run. Yeah. Thanks to the system, we can basically have a larger impact with a smaller team and with less travel. Yeah. Yeah. The local communities that are experiencing some kind of abuse, like, like from a mining company, do they, do they reach out to you or do you hear to the activists of channels of communities that need help and you and you reach out to those communities or how does that how does that end up working no they are always the community who is looking for our help we cannot go to a community that doesn't expressly require our help mm. that's why that's because we i mean i honestly wouldn't see another form of colonialism to arrive there and impose your your presence mm. even if it's for good but still so we mm. always work when there is uh, a call from the community and how many places around the world are you currently working in projects 
total in 10 years we have been working in more than 40 in 26 countries if i remember well i think it was 42 or 43 cases in 26 countries at the moment we are in five or six countries plus we have a couple of international projects and um probably i would say six or seven active projects at the moment i don't have exactly the numbers under my uh, my eyes but more or less those are the numbers okay and where do you hope this all goes flaviano what do you ultimately hoping to see through your work with Source International? It's very ambitious, but I my goal is to obtain that one day through this system, companies will be more profitable if sustainable. By making them pay every time that they are not sustainable, we hope that one day it will be convenient for them to be sustainable because at the end, uh, companies only understand that language. If they can make more money by not polluting, they will stop polluting tomorrow, uh, because that's unfortunately the way that it it works. Um, mm. So our goal is to make them pay for every time that they are not sustainable. Like just pay a fee, pay a fine, pay in some way, pay in 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 some way. It can be a fee, can be that someone goes to jail. Uh, but somehow pay, being justice, uh, having justice for those people. And this is the final goal. Obviously, this will not change the situation of the people who are affected today. Like a community like Cerro de Pasco will not be, uh, will not have any improvement by this system because they are already affected. So this is like, I would say, the long-term goal, like the one in 20 or 30 years. On the shorter term, um, it's just obtain justice and obtain remedies or you know a, an improvement of the life of people who are affected because i mean you have seen it your first stand in cerro de pasco uh, you know people are really suffering yeah the situation is really bad it's not just you know there's a bit of pollution and then people cannot get out and enjoy the environment it's not people are dying people are dying for the pollution caused by a company uh, who's extracting minerals the cheapest way possible, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's that's what we want to stop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember from our time there, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I, I had all I had all these weird rashes that had broken out on the, on the lower part of my back. Yeah, and you was there, you were there, what, a week or something? Yeah, yeah, three or, three or four days, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine people who live there 50 years of their life or 60. Right. And I I mean I wasn't even yeah, I'm not drinking the water. We're drinking bottled water. We're, you know, we're we're even like trying to take precautions. So do do you think do you think there's hope? Do you really think I mean just I don't know. The state of the world is just is just discouraging for me a lot of the time, especially lately. But so how do you uh maintain your hope despite all the evidence to the contrary. <laughs> well, I think if you if you watch in perspective, the state of the world now is 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 bad. It's very bad, but it's better than a hundred years ago. Yes. Um, so if you watch in that perspective, there is you know some sort of hope. If mm. you think 
for example, today the racism problem uh, in the United States is real. It's absolutely real. It's not something that we can uh, say, oh, everything is wonderful. But if you think that what was the situation 60 years ago, even without going, you know, 100 years ago, but 60 years ago, it was way worse. And we can say this about, you know, um, uh, LGBTQI community and a lot of bunch of other things. So, so that, yeah, I think seeing that in perspective um, makes it give you some hope. It, yeah. It, when Rosa Parks decided to not stand up on the bus, uh, the world was awful in that moment. It was horrible, but she still didn't get up, you know? Yeah or Martin Luther King, or Nelson Mandela in South Africa, or all those people she commanded in, in, in Brazil. Uh, so the situation for them for, for actually was actually worse than today. So maybe in 50 years, we, we will have the same situation. You know, company will still pollute less, and people will say, well, but 50 years ago, instead of the Pasco was a mess. So mm. yeah, uh, that's basically the only thing you can grab <laughs> to to you know uh keep some hope yeah one well, and, and this is the i think this was an mlk quote but it but maybe he was quoting somebody else but that the the arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice or something like that which is actually today's martin luther king day isn't it it is yeah, yeah it is <laughs> <laughs> well, we already mentioned him twice I think that that's you know I just I think that's kind of the relevance or the 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 not the relevance but the thing that strikes me so much about your story is that you're living a life that creates that does create impact and and part of the way that that happens that I see is that it's through it's through a certain degree of just being committed to doing the work that's in front of you to do and the work requires a lot and you're not guaranteed any kind of result and and you also can't do it without putting yourself into it. It's not the kind of work where you just leave it at work and then you go home and you w- w- live for the weekend or whatever. So it's just it's something that costs a lot and it has a it does have a big, you know, reward. I see that. I can see that in your life and I've witnessed that. But at the same time it's I don't know. That that's that's always the question is like what am I willing like what's the what's the price I'm willing to pay? Uh, yeah, so I, I just to say that you know I think your exa- your your example of of what the answer to that question is is a really important one. That it that you know it's it re- it does require a lot and it's worth it ultimately in the long run. I I think I hope. <laughs> I yeah I think it's worth it. I I, yeah. I, I generally believe it's worth it. It's. And I think it also depends from uh, the character that each of us is, no? Um, because mm. when you say the, 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 the ability to just switch off for the weekend, that's something that actually sometimes is heavy. It's hard, you know, the hardest part. It's not a job that you can finish at 6 o'clock in the evening and just yeah, forget about it. Yeah, It just stays in your mind. You have to think a lot. And especially if you are someone like me who thinks a lot about things and then... But at the same time, on the other hand, you know, if, you know, uh, t- tomorrow I will die and I watch back and I say, okay, I've done something, you know, there's something on me that th- the world is like a 0.00001% a better place thanks to me. Hmm. I don't know if I could 
do, you know, work in a bank, nine to five, switch my brain off at five, go out running and climbing and ride my bike and enjoy my life and go out for drinks and whatever. And But then the day that I'll die, what I watch then, well, I give a few loan and, <laughs> and promote a few companies and, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I think it depends what what is what is your purpose you want to do in your life. Then obviously, I mean, you can be a banker and have three kids and raise your kids will be the wonderful thing you know and yeah which is uh, i mean i'm not again i don't want to be misunderstood and think that i hate all the bankers and the <laughs> and the christians and the believers in god it's just <laughs> that i am it's just that uh, for me it is um it is different and uh, i i need some purpose to do something and to yeah to, to be to be in peace with myself let's put it like this yeah well i do think that that there's an attitude or uh an awareness with which people live their life and you can i think you can be a banker that is living with the awareness that what the decisions they make and the things that they do have an impact on the people around them and they can choose to have the most impact or they can choose to have the least impact and live for themselves you know like, there's a way to live this way no matter what it is that we're doing i think but I think that, you know, society and, and the pressures that exist and all that stuff make it really make it really difficult. And the fears, you know, people we just are afraid. We're just we're just people who are afraid. Yes, 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 and I agree. Um, yeah, and the fear is actually what plays in the hands of of <laughs> of powerful people. You know, plays in the hands that the fact that you don't do anything for the planet or the people because you are afraid to lose your to get out of your comfort zone you know uh that's something definitely yeah that definitely is a problem we have created like a, a, a clear example you know the I, I i very often struggle to 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 find people that wanted to work with me i know it sounds uh, incredible but it's it's super hard to find like motivated people um that are capable because obviously, I cannot guarantee any stability. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not. No. I'm not surprised that you can't find people. <laughs> because it. I mean, yeah. If people had a kind of a conversation with you, it's the most amazing story. But when you actually think about stepping into that and living that out yourself, you're like that. That seems way too hard. <laughs> you know? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> that's probably yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's probably the case. Um, but I think because you know people when listen to the story say, "Wow, amazing, wonderful," but then they are afraid to get out of their comfort zone, and yeah, and that's uh, and that stability. You know, this uh, back to the bankers again. Hi, hello. Stability. Yes, <laughs> we love all the bankers, but <laughs> just yes. you know they have the stability and the. Uh, the base of their life is just nine to five, doing your job. Is and it's what I think, uh, on the long run, make make people afraid to get out of that. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, the fear of getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so my last my last question here, Flaviano, is just how how do you keep yourself healthy in all of this? What do you do to Keep your mind right. Keep your body right. I I run like like a maniac. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As simple as that. <laughs> and that I do run. What does that run every what does day? What give you? Do ultra running and things like that. 
what gives me to me? It gives a space that is mine, you know, when I, uh, when I do, when I get out of running, mostly if I go running up in the mountains, I can just for a moment be myself, enjoy the nature sometimes, not sometimes, mm-hmm. often. You know, I mm-hmm. do whatever to protect the, the 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 nature, and then sometimes I want it to enjoy too. Yeah. Um, it keeps my body healthy, which is also keeps your mind healthy, which is obviously uh, important. And somehow washed my brain. You know, uh, it's it's a moment that I dedicate every day, uh, almost every day, one hour, two hours, sometimes more, sometimes less, to myself. You know, I just now I have one hour. That's me. I go out, I run, I enjoy it, and yeah, and kept myself healthy and motivated and fresh. Is that a practice that you stumbled upon yourself, or did someone recommend that to you, or how did you come to that? I've always been sporty. I've always done sport. I just used to ride my bike. Uh, I was a cyclist and a, a climber. Now I'm back to climbing a little bit, but... Uh, you know, at the end, running is the most easy to do sport. It's just a necessity. Wherever you are in the world, you just put your running shoes into your backpack, which are like 300 grams, <laughs> and a pair of shorts, yeah. and you can run pretty much everywhere. And it's also a very, you know, natural sport. You do it's what the most natural things you can do, probably. So that's that's uh, my my it, it's it's actually as I said, it's my space. It's a moment in time every day that I kept for me. You know, like people who meditate or people who do yoga or who read or write a diary or whatever. Yeah. So, okay. So I actually have one more question um, because I, I think it connects to this. Is, and that is, you know, one, one thing that comes up for me a lot is when I have an idea or something I want to do that's difficult, that's, that's not necessarily in my wheelhouse or even stuff that I have done before, like with work related as a, as a filmmaker is I experience self doubt. I can't really do that or I'm not, I'm never going to succeed or it's impossible or like, who am I to think that I could make a difference or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Is that something that you feel like you deal with or have you sort of dealt with that in the past and you're kind of over that now as you've gotten older in terms of the work that you do? Yes, I do. I do. I do come across this, but I'm mostly over, I would say. And in these, for example, the uh, it's very related to the previous question, the running and the sport. The sport is what teaches me uh, what to do, you know. And coming from, I always done, I would, as I said, I used to be a cyclist and being competitive, uh, you know, doing, you know, proper races and then running. Uh, it's 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 funny because if you think about a, um, a soccer game or a basketball game, you know, you have 50% chance of winning. You get an 11 against 11 and 11 win and 11 doesn't. Um but if you run, you start in 2,000 and only one win. So the, the chances that you lose is like 1,999. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, but at the same time, what they teach you is that you start with the idea of winning. If you just, from the start, you think that you will lose, then you have already lost. And then, and that were one side. And the other side is just that as soon as you give, give it all, you basically, you won. If you have done, if you give it all on a race, then it's like you won, even if you are the last one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I apply this also to my daily life and my work. I know I will probably lose, 
but I start with the idea of winning and I give it all. Yeah. If I give it all and I'm the last one to the, to the finish line, I don't care. I give it all. What I do care, is, and and this is related also, like, if I go out running in a race, I don't do a lot of races. I do, like, two, three times a year, but whatever. And I arrive that I'm still, that I'm not exhausted, then I feel bad. Huh. <laughs> but if I arrive exhausted, even if I'm the last one, I don't care. Yeah. And that's the same. And I apply the same system to the work. I give it all. I, I start a project. I know it's difficult. I give it all. If I lost, fine. I gave it all. I couldn't have done any better. Finish. Yeah. Well, it almost seems like the finish line is different in that it's it's almost more in the process. If I if I'm hearing you right too, in that like what's what's actually worth your time is caring about people and do doing what you can to help people who need your help. Like that. That's it. That's what's worth your time. Exactly. And and that's what you're doing. And the result you kind of have to hold the result loosely because that's outside of your control but what's in your control is that you can care about people and use your skills to do that yeah exactly and as and if we do the same parallel what is in my control if i go for a run is just give it all yeah if i give it all it's fine i'm okay with myself and that's the same in in my in my project uh, i i give it all i do whatever i can i do the maximum to feel to 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 make people lives better if it happened fine if it doesn't as soon as i give do the max do the best uh, i'm okay that the rest is out of my control yeah yeah and I, you had did you have to learn that mm, probably i think it came out as a process after you know <laughs> years and years of <laughs> of, of, of of this life and this work yeah I think. Oh man, well thank you. Thanks Flaviano for your time to do this conversation and fighting with microphones and and uh getting it scheduled. I I've been a huge fan of just your work. I I one of the things I really respect about you that I feel like is very um obvious in my interactions that I've had with you is you don't you're not doing this for recognition. You're just who you are. And um I admire that. And your work and the things that you do come to mind for me often. That that trip to Peru was uh, back in 2016 was was something that has really impacted me on a pretty deep level. Uh, and I th- yeah, I think about it a lot. So I appreciate you sharing your wisdom and things you've learned over the years today. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm happy to share and yeah, that's, I also have good memories of our trip in Cerro de Pasco. There was also some sort of fun in that moment. <laughs> there was, yeah. I was going to say like that. That is the the one thing about like as a filmmaker, you're putting like your, every effort that you have, all your energy into getting the stuff that you need to capture while you're there and trying to do it in a way that is honoring to the people who are there to film and, and, and all that. And it was just like such a fulfilling trip. At the end of that trip, you know, our very last night, we went out to some uh, that yeah. that bar, <laughs> that that whatever that was that yeah. that music hall, and there was just that wall of musicians that, <laughs> that was so loud, just like 120 decibels, and we were, <laughs> we were drinking these we hot that, shots. Yes, what was it like? Seven herbs of the forest or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I will never forget that. That was an unbelievable experience. <laughs> yeah. I also remember when we were drinking pisco in the room 
<laughs> with snowing outside, and we were drinking pisco in, in the room. Megan, Megan. Yeah, Megan put it one down, like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she did not like that stuff. We had all our space heaters in that one room. There was like True. four of us. Uh, There's no ho- there's no heat in that hotel, and it was below freezing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so good, so good. Well, good luck with everything that you're doing. Um, Should I stop recording here? Yeah, sure. We can stop. Yeah, let's stop. You can stop okay. recording there. Yeah. Done. Awesome. All right. Okay. Flaviano. Thank you, Joel. Have a great night, and thanks again. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Great to see you again. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye. You can learn more about the work Flaviano and his team are doing with Source International by visiting source-international.org. I really recommend checking it out and reading through some of the stories there. The link to the website can also be found in the episode description. The topic of this show is really about investigating people who are living focused, brave lives. I do think that that in order to be living well, we need to be making decisions that are on the edge of safety. We uh, need to be taking risks. We need to be stepping into things that are unknown. But it's so easy to live for stability and comfort. Because I grew up in an environment where at times money was stressful, that's what having a lot of money in the bank means. It means I'm taken care of. I don't have to worry. I'm secure. But the people I'm talking to for this podcast, the people I really admire, they've all had to put that security on the line at some point and live for something other than stability and comfort. Follow the fear, I think, is the expression. And I think Flaviano is a great example of that. He's just trying to do what he thinks is right, and he's not afraid to really go for it, which I think is a pretty beautiful thing. It's hard. It's hard to do, though. It's really hard to do. But that's why I love these conversations, because they're a reminder to me that it's worthwhile and it's possible in my life. One day at a time. All right, that's episode four. Thanks for listening, and... I'll see you next week, episode five.